0: And I'd like to invite you to take the Bibles that you brought with you or the Bible that's there in the pew and open up to the end of 1st John chapter 5 starting at verse 13 is where you want to be it's on page 857 in the pew Bible and today we come to the end of John's first letter to the church we have two more to look at over the next couple of weeks but the end of his first letter today and as you're getting there some have read his closing words as little more than a collection of unrelated topics And when we, as you open it up and as we look at it together this morning, it cannot be denied that John does sort of end his letter, his first letter, somewhat abruptly. However, what I hope you're going to see this morning is to perceive these last verses as just a bit of randomness on John's part, I think is a really great misreading of his intentions here. As we are about to read together, John is, what, is, what John's going to do is he's going to offer us a measured conclusion, a solid summary of all that he has written so far, all that we've been looking at over these last few weeks. If you will, long before it became a standard tip for public speaking, John started this letter by telling us what he was going to tell us, and now he prepares to tell us what he told us. <laughs> We're going to read this a little differently today. We're going to read this verse by verse as a way of getting into it. So right from the outset, verse 13 is the verse I want you to look at. And keep those Bibles open because all along, John has been insisting throughout everything else he's had to say, he's been just clear in saying that his purpose for writing has been for our assurance. And in verse 13, you see him say that towards the end. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In the midst of a world filled filled with challenges before the rival wisdom and countering philosophies of this age, even at times as we confront the reality of our own doubts and questions, John wants you and I to know, to be certain of one thing, the one thing that is everything, namely that our trust in Jesus is not in vain, that even when our faith in Christ seems insecure, eternal life is ours. A forgiven, a beloved, an empowered, transformed life. The very life that is Jesus Christ himself is ours now. And if you're a fan of John's or if you're you're, you're thinking, if you thought about it, John writes these letters, he writes Revelation, but he also writes a gospel. And interestingly, John's purpose in writing here in his first letter hasn't changed all that much because if you were to go back and to read the end of his gospel, he tells us the same thing makes the same claim. I write so that you would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you can be assured that eternal life is yours through him. And one of the things that I just briefly mentioned but I wanna hit John, PJ, last week uh, hit this hard and I wanna reinforce it, is that John, when he talks throughout this letter about this assurance of eternal life that is ours, he wants us to understand it's now. Notice as you're looking down, John doesn't say, so that you may know one day you will have eternal life. No, John is saying that in and through Jesus Christ, God has brought our future into our present. That right now, present tense, right at this point, in this time of your life, you possess everything that pertains to eternal life, including the confidence that comes with eternal life. And John, as he closes out here, once again reminds us what the content of this eternal life is, what the characteristics are by which we might recognize it and gain this confidence John has, in fact, spent his whole letter unpacking these answers these, to, the, to these questions, and now he summarizes exactly what we know. And for that part, you're going to skip ahead a little bit, because we're going to work backwards from verse 20, because it's in the final verses, in fact, that John tells us exactly what we know. And what we know are three things. We know what is true, we know the victory is ours, and we know we have freedom So again, working backwards from verse 20, John writes, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So first, we know what is true. And everyone, as we've talked about throughout this sermon series, everyone is searching for truth. Some think they have truth. Others claim each person must find their own truth. But John has repeatedly throughout this letter reminded us that truth has been revealed to us. Truth has grabbed and laid hold of us in Jesus Christ. Eternal life and the confidence that it brings begins by knowing and by living out of the reality that is Christ. By facing and accepting the truth and nothing but the truth that is Jesus. The only real truth, as John has laid out in this first letter, the only real truth is not some collection of knowledge. It's not a wealth of experience. It's not some developed philosophy. Truth is a person, a relationship. Only the truth of Christ can reconcile all that is wrong in this world. Only the truth that is Jesus can redeem what we have lost and what we will still lose. Only the truth that is Jesus Christ can take us beyond this life as we know it. There is no truth apart from Christ. There is no truth without Jesus. If we know what is true, then we accept no counterfeits, John has told us. We tolerate no rivals. And that's why the final line where it just kind of seems like the letter drifts off, off, verse 21, that's why John puts in this final line of dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Because, Reality gets skewed for us. The real truth becomes obscured when, for the sake of convenience or expediency, we cling to substitutes or imitations for God. And remember, that was part of the context. That's part of the trouble in the community. There's sort of this desire to sort of accept substitutes or counterfeits. And, and for us, in our context, idols are, once again, whatever we give our commitment to, our attention, our interest, our energy, our time, our resources, our thoughts, whatever we give those things to is our God. And if our God, whatever that is, that, 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 that's the end destination of, if our God is not the God, Jesus is, then John pulls no punches. He hasn't at once throughout this letter. If our God is not the God, Jesus, then our truth is not the truth, the truth that is Christ. And it will not stand up. Our confidence, which is what John says, this is what I want you to have, our confidence will falter, and we will end up, when we cling to idols, right back where we started, longing, searching, and worrying, and not with the joy and the assurance of eternal life. The confidence of eternal life begins by knowing what is true, who is true, Jesus Christ. But the confidence of eternal life is also about knowing that salvation is ours. John wants us to know we have the truth, but we also have the victory. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. John hasn't shied away about being honest about what's going on around us. My friends, he writes in his own time, but his own time is our time. This world is a mess. Even though Jesus has won the war for our souls, even as a broken creation longs for its redemption as it is being remade, the battle goes on. The conflict rages on because the enemy of our faith, the contamination of sin, and the reality of death are holding out waging a lost cause until the bitter end. And so the hits just keep on coming. The lies continue to be told. The darkness still manages to, to fall and obscure that light that will never go out. In the midst of these challenges that are before us in John's day as well as in ours, we can become scared and afraid. When the wind gets knocked out of us, it's easy to panic and to forget to breathe tired and frustrated, whining and complaining, feeling sorry for ourselves. It can be tempting to lose that confidence, that assurance John wants us to have. It can be tempting to just turn and run and hide. But John reminds us not to forget what we know, not to forget who we are, not to forget whose we are, that the victory is ours, that we are not orphans, We are not alone. We don't have to do it on our own. We are the children of God, John writes. We are the children of God. Our identity is our destiny. No matter how things appear, no matter how bad things may get, no matter how lost or forsaken we might even feel, our Father promises and purposes to bring us home. Because we know who we are, because we know whose we are, John wants us to be certain of where we are going, of where we will end up. The confidence of eternal life, in other words, is the confidence that victory is our destiny, that homecoming is our epitaph, that salvation is ours. John wants us to know what is true. John wants us to know we have the victory. And finally, John wants us to know we have freedom. Freedom to overcome the power of sin. John writes in verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Once again, and John has said this before, this is a summary, remember. John has mentioned this earlier in the letter, letter, but once again, John is not declaring here that we will never sin. He is asserting there will not be an ongoing trajectory of sin in our lives. The issue for John is not the occasional act of sin, though that matters. Don't take it lightly. John is talking about the pattern, the rhythm that characterizes our lives. For John, it's not about the exception, it's about the rule. Sincere followers of Jesus do not want to sin. Therefore, an ongoing lifestyle of sin, of living in willful disobedience or indifference to God, is not possible. Furthermore, as we live out of the confidence of eternal life that we have, John assures us, look at it again, the one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. My friends, Jesus did not come to die on the cross and be raised from the dead just to help us manage the sinfulness in our lives. God in Christ and through the ongoing presence of his spirit purposes to eradicate the problem of sin once and for all, to destroy not the sinner, but the corrupting and disrupting influence sin has in our lives, our relationships, and in this world And that means that whenever we feel the temptation, and we will, whenever we feel the frailty of our own flesh, and we will, whenever we feel the urge, the desire, the whisper of the evil one, and we will to gossip, to hoard, to ignore injustice, to lust, to lack control, to withhold forgiveness, we can say no. Knowing that the strength of our denial, our power to overcome comes from our victory in Christ. As we remember and practice the truth of who about who we are, whose we are, we will discover the power to resist temptation, to counter our weakness with God's strength, and thereby rise to obedience. We have freedom, John wants us to know. And experiencing the freedom of such safety and confidence born of such protection that John talks about is a result of standing behind and letting Jesus go before us. Hear me this morning. That freedom is a result of standing behind and letting Jesus go before us. If we walk on our own, if we get ahead of the Lord, or worse, if we go our own way, this isn't freedom. And that's so important to hear because these are the very things that we often sell as freedom. And John says that's not freedom. Because when we go on our own, when we get ahead of the Lord, or worse, go our own way, we are opening ourselves up to threat, to danger, to harm, to being led astray, to being taken captive, to becoming trapped by fear and death, the very things that Jesus came to set us free from. Existing out of the confidence of eternal life that is Christ means we have to know what is true. We have to know we have the victory, and we have to know and live out of the freedom. We have to know all of these things that John has taken, taken apart for us throughout this letter in a way that we live out of this knowledge, out of the knowledge of the truth, out of the knowledge of our victory, out of the knowledge of our freedom. And what I love, as we continue to work backwards, is in verses 14 through 15, almost where we start, John offers us, as he closes, a practical example of applying this knowledge, of taking what we know and applying it, of living out of this confidence of eternal life that is ours now in Jesus Christ. Look at what he writes in verses 14 through 15. This is the confidence, building on what he said, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, We know that we have what we have asked of him. John, and it's brilliant, what John is doing here is, as his practical example, he is referring to the foundational basis of our relationship with God. Prayer. The foundational basis of our relationship with God is prayer. Prayer. How we talk to God, how we listen to God, how we engage God through prayer, John is saying, ought to be shaped by the confidence we have been given by Christ, by the assurance that we have of eternal life. Praying out of the confidence we have is reflected in when we pray. When we pray. My friends, is prayer your first response or your last hope? Do we engage our relationship with God like everyone else? Maybe even as the last person on the list? The relationships in which I am most confident, in which I feel the most safe, loved, protected are my go-to relationships. Is the Lord your go-to relationship or your relationship of last resort? Oftentimes, these relationships in which I am most confident derive from specific memories of when the other person was there for me, when they came through. Beloved, are you giving the Lord that chance? Are you giving the Lord that chance to show you that he can come through? And here's the thing, even if you don't give God that chance, God comes through anyway. So the question actually becomes, do you take time to recognize, even sometimes despite yourself, God's intervention and to remember his faithfulness? Because this is how we gain confidence in our relationship with God. This is why it's so important that we aren't always just about prayer requests, but we're also about praises. We go back and we see where God answered, where God showed up, where God was at work, Praying last usually means I know what I want and I'm asking God to give it to me. This is what I'm pushing you. Do you pray first or pray last? Because if you pray last, and if you pray last, then you're probably praying out of a place of where you know what you want and you're asking God to give it to you. But praying first is different. Because praying first, even before I think or know about what I want, means learning and embracing what God knows and wants. Are we asking our Father, can you help me? Will you help me? Or are we saying, I know you hear me? As John is telling us, I know you hear me. I trust you've got this. Show me how you are helping me, directing me, guiding me. You catching the subtlety? Of confidence in prayer. John, John, we need to be careful. We need to read and listen carefully to what John is writing here. He's mentioned this before, but once again, we need to be careful because it can, it can be easy in these final verses to just hear and latch on to pieces of what he writes here. You know, if we ask anything, God hears us. Whatever we ask, we know we have, we have what we have asked of him. You could just like pick those out and go, ah. Okay, whatever I ask, God will give it to me. Whatever we ask of God, God's gonna make it happen. But beloved, John has said this throughout his letter, so in summary at the end, he's not going to go away from it. Our confidence in prayer is not rooted in a God who always gives us what we want. Our confidence in prayer comes from the God who always gives us what we need. This confidence of eternal life that starts out of this foundational life of prayer, it's so important we understand what this orientation, this posture looks like. Prayer is not some sort of spiritual crowbar allowing us to somehow exert leverage upon God, causing him to do what he otherwise would be reluctant, unwilling, or unable to do. And I think that, you know, at the surface, we'd all go, well, yeah, duh. But functionally, I think that's how many of us operate. A small boy was writing a letter to God about the Christmas presents he badly wanted. I've been good for six months now, he wrote. But after a moment's reflection, he crossed out six months and wrote three. (laughs) After a pause, that was crossed out, and he put two weeks. There was another pause, and that was crossed out too. He got up from the table, went over to the little nativity scene that had figures of Mary and Joseph. He picked up the figure of Mary and went back to his letter and started writing, Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again... Prayer. Prayer is not a convenience device for imposing our will upon God or bending His will to ours. Prayer is less of a battle. It's less of a battle to get God's attention, to change God's mind, to push God into action. Prayer. What John is hitting here is much more of a response of lifting our will to God, of submitting to the person of God rather than demanding of God's person. Confidence in prayer, my friends, asking anything, as John puts it, isn't so much about challenging the will of God through our prayers as it is having confidence, again, that word, confidence that the Lord's will is done no matter what. And God's will is revealed clearly in the scriptures. That's why, making some connections here, that's why opening, reading and studying our Bibles is intimately connected with our prayer life, our relationship with God. How do you know what God's will is? You God tells us what his will is. When we pray according to God's will, that is when we pray for those things that are consistent with what the Lord has revealed in his word, his character, his purposes, our Father will not only hear our prayer, but he will give us what we ask for. That is what John is saying. That's the kind of confidence that comes out of knowing the truth, knowing the victory is ours, and knowing that we have freedom. And John isn't the only one who tells us this. Jesus does too. Jesus told us this very same thing, that whatever we ask of the Heavenly, our Heavenly Father, we would receive. Jesus told us this, and in fact, Jesus taught us specifically to pray this way. How do we pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Don't miss the next part. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Beloved, it's by prayer that we seek God's will, that we embrace God's will, that we align ourselves to his will. I want you to hear me this morning as I've nuanced this, and in light of how I've nuanced it, hear what I'm about to say. God will give you whatever you ask, so long as you ask for what he wants to give you. The key to confidence in our prayers is the content of our prayers. And as John continues in verses 16 through 17, he puts some teeth on this. He offers us an important insight into what God's will is for us all. It's quite fascinating, quite compelling to me. He gives us a very overarching understanding of what the content of our prayers should be. And it's probably the most confusing verse that's here. Let's look at it. He writes, verses 16 through 17, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Say what? (laughs) Let's address the elephant in the room. If you just even are still looking at that passage and scratching your head, what is the sin leading to death? The sin leading to death is, I have no idea. There are lots of theories, of course. I could take some time. I'm not going to. John doesn't tell us. This is one of those examples, and we often forget this as we read this letter, that we're reading someone else's mail. Don't ever forget that. We're reading someone else's mail because this is one of those examples where John doesn't clarify this for his original readers because presumably they knew, so he didn't need to explain. So I don't want us to get fixated on what's the sin that leads to death. Before we get lost in speculation about that, let's instead focus on what John does tell us. You might have missed it because it's easy to get caught up in what we just were looking at. What John tells us is the general focus of our prayers, it's real subtle, it's right there, the general focus of our prayers is for life. Look at what he writes. The general focus of our prayers is for life. This is the foundational prayer because God's overall will, his ultimate desire is for life, eternal life. My friends, do you want that? Do we want this? Because let's be honest, everlasting life could be awful depending on the quality of that life. Again, I don't believe they exist, but imagine if it was in the offer of eternal life from a vampire. Pass. (laughs) Right? So be careful when you say, when when God's ultimate desire is for life, life eternal, do you want that? Because the quality of that life matters. And the thing is that John has tried to, to just bring out for us is the eternal life offered to us by Jesus, is life with God. The focus of our prayers, our engagement with Christ, our submission of our will to the Spirit is learning to think, to speak, and live into a reality that is more than we could ever imagine or hope for. The reality of the truth of Christ, the victory of Christ, the freedom of Christ. Beloved, eternal life is not just life with God, eternal life is the life of God. God, this is the foundational prayer because, and this is, I mean, to me, very logical, God wants more of what God is. And God is life that is perfect. God is life that is pure. God is life that is good. And God wants to share this life, his life, eternal life, with us. And he wants for us to share this life, his life, this good, pure, perfect, eternal life with others. Are we sharing this life with others? Do we want to share this life with everyone John tells us that sharing this life begins by praying for this life for others. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. John does not write, if anyone sees a brother or sister sinning, call up all of your friends and tell them about it so they can pray. This is a spiritual cover for Gossip. John also doesn't tell us, if anyone sees his brother or sister sinning, you should shake your head in disgust and ask, how could he or she do such a thing? This is called sitting in judgment, a prerogative reserved, by the way, for God alone. No. John writes, if you see a brother or sister struggling, pray for God to give life to him or her. God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as an offering of forgiveness to bring eternal life, salvation for all. Therefore, the content of our prayers, the base foundational content of all of our prayers cannot be driven by anything less. Anything less than forgiveness, salvation, redemption, reconciliation, eternal life for all. For all. We are 1 week after the shock of Orlando. And you may not realize this but we also find ourselves 1 year later after the dreadfulness of Charleston. I wasn't with you last Sunday, John so wonderfully and faithfully preached. I got home from driving Emma home and had the morning to prepare for a tough memorial service and as you did many of you did maybe before you got to church got the news about Orlando and I made the epic mistake of turning on the television and of engaging social media. And beyond being just so devastated in the midst of so many other things of what took place in Orlando, my heart just broke at all the things that came after. And my heart's been breaking all week long. What strikes me, beloved, in the wake of these tragedies. What strikes me, what haunts me, is how we as Christians will always respond by saying we're holding others up in prayer. We'll always respond by saying we're praying for you. But then we will immediately proceed to start sharing our opinion, to rationalize what happened, to defend our rights, to decry those who would disagree with us, and eventually look for a scapegoat, someone to blame, a religion, a sexual orientation, a political party, you name it. Here's my point in light of what John has shared about, specifically about prayer. We say we are praying. That's always our lead as Christians. But are we praying? What are we praying for? Are we praying for our position? for our rights, for our will to be done? Or can we admit, if nothing else this morning, can I ask you, can we admit in the midst of all of our posturing and politicking, in the midst of our taking sides and dismissal of contrary views before the countless numbers of peoples and families who are crying out for justice and mercy, can we dare confess this morning that we are out of our depth That the answer, the peace, the resolution, the reconciliation we seek is beyond us. Don't misunderstand what I am trying to say very sensitively right now. I am not telling you to throw up your hands and not care. I am saying we truly need to get on our knees and seek God's will. Not to pray for what we want God to do but to honestly and openly ask what God wants us to do. How God wants us to respond. How God wants us to vote. How God wants us to live in a diverse country. How God wants us to engage different moral and religious visions with love and respect, free from violence and hatred. My God. I know what you all think about the various issues, and frankly, pardon my language, I don't give a damn. What I wanna know, what I wanna talk about, what I wanna hear you tell me is what you think God thinks about all of these issues. From opening your Bible, from getting on your knees, what the Lord is telling you, not what you are telling the Lord, not what you are putting upon the word of God, but what the word of God is putting upon your heart. Because that is our calling. That is our responsibility. That is our opportunity. Where does Jesus stand? Where does Jesus stand? With whom does Jesus stand? I don't know, from my prayers, from my reading of scripture, from what John just tells me in that one verse I pointed to you, Jesus stands with those who are suffering. Jesus stands with the victims. Jesus stands with those who are dying. In these trying times, who are we praying for? If we say we are praying, who are we praying for? Are we praying for ourselves? Are we praying for those who agree with us? Are we praying for those who vote like we do? Are we praying for those who share our beliefs? Because if our prayers are only limited to those people, please hear this, we may end up finding ourselves inadvertently or God forbid purposefully contributing to the prejudice and the hatred, the hateful rhetoric that spurs the violence born of bullets and guns. That is a hard word and I don't say it lightly. But it begins with how and for whom we pray. Words have power. Our God creates by speaking. Words have power and they have the power to take life or to give it. When we pray for all of our brothers and sisters, all of them fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, all of them children of God, regardless of their race, their religion or sexuality, we are following Jesus Christ and we are being present, not only with them, but for them. We are telling them, not just with words of love, but with actions, that even though we disagree with them, they do not deserve the violence and the hatred that took their lives. When we pray first, not last, when we pray first, our rights take a back seat to speaking and suffering in love and justice for a vulnerable and sinful world in pain that God seeks to redeem and make whole. How do I transition out of this? We finish our first letter with John and we find ourselves finishing it, I don't think ironically, I think purposefully, on a day where we are devoted to remembering, to honoring, and to celebrating our fathers, biological, adoptive, spiritual, or otherwise. And it strikes me that the ending of John's first letter, overall what he's trying to say, can be boiled down to this, father knows best. Those of you who've lived for a few decades, or perhaps like to watch Nickelodeon TV land, (laughs) might remember the 1950s hit sitcom that had this title. For those of you who didn't, Father Knows Best starred Robert Young and it portrayed a middle-class family in the Midwest that week after week came to their father for perspective, guidance, and direction. The overall message of the show was to look and to listen to Dad and everything will be all right. On the whole, First John to me has a similar theme. However, John's message is not based on a made-up, perfect father on a television show. It comes by faith in our true, perfect, heavenly father who reveals his love, mercy, and grace to us through Jesus Christ. In the person of Christ and through the leading of the Holy Spirit, God, our father, really does know best. Our Father delights when we look to Him and trust in Him. Our Father seeks to be in relationship with us, to walk with us, to lead us forward, not in some mad dash or hurry, but gradually, continuously, incrementally, growing us into our true identity as His children, as reflections of His image in Jesus. Our Father offers us his counsel, his wisdom, understanding, and advice so that we will know not only his mind and his heart, but so that we will also hear his call and receive his power to exercise his will in devotion and service to others. The word you might remember that John has used throughout this first letter to describe this relationship, this dynamic with God is abide. And again, abiding refers to remaining, continuing, persevering in our relationship, our fellowship with the Lord. Beloved, through our relationship with Jesus, let us come to our Father today. Let us abide in his word and in his spirit. Let us look to and listen to our dad. And you know, everything will be all right. Amen.